Wonderful, wonderful fellowship. Good to hear happy, joy-filled people filling God's house this morning. When we read from the gospel this morning, it mentioned that the women were astonished and amazed to find the empty tomb, and the angels said, why, why are you amazed? Remember, he told you this is what would happen. We don't listen well, do we? In fact, nobody was listening to, to Jesus. He told them many times what would happen. They were kind of in denial that he was going to die. It didn't fit with their agenda. They wanted him to be king and overthrow Rome and make everything right and fix all their earthly problems and meet all their earthly needs. And Jesus had a much bigger agenda in mind. He had their eternal needs in mind. In fact, the night before... He was handed over to be tried, and he met with his disciples. He said this, A little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, What is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. They probably could have said that line a lot in the three years Jesus taught them. We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain, because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. Isn't that wonderful? And so, on a day when we celebrate the resurrection, being this the last Sunday of the month, it's a tradition for our church to celebrate the Lord's Supper, a supper Jesus commanded His followers to celebrate, that we would celebrate a death, which is strange, by the world's standards. But Jesus taught like no one else had ever taught. Well, if you're wondering what page to open your Bible to, this morning won't be a typical exposition of a passage of Scripture, but more we're going to look at various Scriptures to explain the significance of Jesus' death. I realize most people in this room have some understanding uh, Probably a really deep understanding. But we just got through reading Scripture, and the Scripture said that as long as we drink from the cup and take this bread, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We proclaim the Lord's death. Isn't that strange? On this day where we celebrate the resurrection and new life, and we're all thinking about life and spring and warm weather and our, our gardens coming to... Back to life, unless you accidentally planted a few 
weeks ago, and uh, that freeze came in. Yes, we're people of a resurrected living God, but it's a God who's asked us, commanded us. It says on the front of this table, this do in remembrance of me. Jesus commanded that we celebrate his death. Be strange if anybody else required that of us. And yet, this is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He wants us to consider his, his death. Certainly because Jesus rose on Sunday, the first day of the week, that has become the day of worship and celebration for Christians. Jews celebrated worship on Saturday, the last day of the week. Jesus, by rising from the grave on Sunday, that became really Resurrection Day. Every Sunday that we meet in worship, we're celebrating His resurrection. Amen? Amen. And yet, Jesus left the church with two ordinances, two two acts to commemorate what His life meant. One is baptism. And in baptism, we're also remembering and celebrating His death. As we go under the water, we died with Christ. We died to our old nature. We died to sin. We died to selfishness. We died to our pride. And we come out of the water like Jesus came out of the grave with new life. But as individuals, we only celebrate that ordinance once in a lifetime. Some of us maybe have been baptized more than once, but you get the picture. Jesus said, you must be born again in John chapter 3, and that is what baptism celebrates. But the Lord's Supper, we do this all the time. Jesus left us with an ordinance that makes us think deeply about his death. There isn't another ordinance for his resurrection that goes with it. Isn't that interesting? That the living God wants us to consider his death. It's said that the only sure things in life are death and taxes. Can I get an amen? (laughs) April 15th coming up. Yet, we don't have a date for when we'll die. God has the date. He hasn't told us what it will be. But we can be sure of it. It is appointed for all men to die once and then judgment. It's not something we like to talk about, yet it's part of the world we live in. It's a reality. We need to come to grips with it. God came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. He was born a man and he died. The eternal Son of God, the creator and sustainer of life, actually died. How can that be? How can God die? What does it mean? The greatest symbol of the Christian faith isn't the empty tomb, it's the cross an instrument of suffering, torture, and death. So I know it's Easter Sunday in spring, and we're in the mood for everything that reminds us of life, but the Lord has commanded us to consider His death. So first, we're going to consider His death this morning. 
and then talk about his life. In order to talk about his death, though, we need a working definition of death. Really? I think we all know what it means. Not so fast. Whenever you're going to speak on any topic, you need to define your terms. I want to make sure when I talk about death, we're talking about the same thing. So we'll go to Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, the first slide up here. Death, the end of life, the cessation of life. I'm tracking. And then this strange comment. These common definitions of death ultimately depend upon the definition of life upon which there is no consensus. I was a biology major in college. Biology is the study of life, bio, life. Ology, study of. You're telling me my parents and myself dropped a penny pit, pretty penny to get a degree in something that the world can't come to an agreement upon the definition of. I have a degree in confusion, apparently. Well, let's look up the definition of life from the same dictionary. Life, one, the quality that distinguishes a vital and functional being from a dead body. Wait a minute. Okay, so the definition of life is something that's not dead, and the definition of death is something that's not alive. Yeah, the definition of up is it's not down, and the definition of down is it's not up. Come on. That's circular reasoning. That doesn't get us anywhere. I don't mean to make light of death this morning. It's a serious thing. Many of you grieving the death of loved ones. Maybe the first Easter you're celebrating without them. And yet, again, our Lord asked us, commanded us to consider death, and we can't even get a definition from the world. So, I decided to go back to my roots and study life and death from a scientific perspective and see if they can give us better definitions here. So I'm going to do something a little different this morning. You're going to watch a video. This is the best explanation scientifically of life and death in, in a brief video. If you start to get lost in the middle because they're using terminology you haven't heard since high school biology, it's okay. There's no quiz afterwards, but I think you'll find this informative and interesting. Life is fundamentally different from dead stuff, or is it? Physicist Erwin Schrödinger defined life this way. Living things avoid decay into disorder and equilibrium. What does this mean? Let's pretend that your download folder is the universe. It started orderly and got more and more chaotic over time. By investing energy, you can create order and clean it up. This is what living things do. But what is life? Every living thing on this planet is made of cells. Basically, a cell is a protein-based robot too small to feel or experience anything. It has the properties we just assigned to life. It has a wall that separates it from the surroundings creating order. It regulates itself 
and maintains a constant state. It eats stuff to stay alive, it grows and develops, it reacts to the environment, and it's subject to evolution, and it makes more of itself. But of all the stuff that makes up a cell, no part is alive. Stuff reacts chemically with other stuff, forming reactions that start other reactions which start other reactions. In a single cell every second, several million chemical reactions take place, forming a complex orchestra. A cell can build several thousand types of protein, some very simple, some complex micro-machines. Imagine driving a car at 100 kilometers an hour while constantly rebuilding every single part of it with stuff you collect from the street. That is what cells do. But no part of the cell is alive. Everything is dead matter moved by the laws of the universe. So is life the aggregate of all these reaction processes that are taking place? Eventually, every living thing will die. The goal of the whole process is to prevent this by producing new entities. And by this, we mean DNA. Life is, in a way, just a lot of stuff that carries genetic information around. Every living thing is subject to evolution, and the DNA that develops the best living thing around it will stay in the game. So, is DNA life, then? If you take DNA out of its hull, it certainly is a very complex molecule, but it can't do anything by itself. This is where viruses make everything more complicated. They are basically strings of RNA or DNA in a small hull and need cells to do something. We're not sure if they count as living or dead. And still, there are 225 million cubic meters of viruses on Earth. They don't seem to care what we think of them. There are even viruses that invade dead cells and reanimate them so they can be a host for them, which blurs the line even more. Or mitochondria. They are the power plants of most complex cells and were previously free-living bacteria that entered a partnership with bigger cells. They still have their own DNA and can multiply on their own, but they are not alive anymore. They are dead. So they traded their own life for the survival of their DNA, which means living things can evolve into dead things as long as it's beneficial to their genetic code. So, maybe life is information that manages to ensure its continued existence. But what about AI, artificial intelligence? By our most common definitions, we are very close to creating artificial life in computers. It's just a question of time before the technology we build gets there. And this is not science fiction either. There are a lot of smart people actively working on this. You could already argue that computer viruses are alive. Hmm, okay, so what is life then? Things, processes, DNA, information? This got confusing very fast. One thing is for sure, the idea that life is fundamentally different from non-living things because they contain some non-physical element or are governed by different principles than inanimate objects turns out to be wrong. Before Charles Darwin, humans drew a line between themselves and the rest of living things. There was something magical about us that made us special. Once we had to accept we are, like every living being, a product of evolution, we drew a different line. But the more we learn about what computers can do and how life works, the closer we get to creating the first machine that fits our description of life, the more our image of ourselves is in danger again. And this will happen sooner or later. 
And here's another question for you. If everything in the universe is made of the same stuff, does this mean everything in the universe is dead or that everything in the universe is alive? That it's just a question of complexity? Does this mean we can never die because we were never alive in the first place? Is life and death an irrelevant question and we haven't noticed it yet? Is it possible we are much more part of the universe around us than we thought? Don't look at us. We don't have any answers for you, just questions for you to think about. After all, it's thinking about questions like this that makes us feel alive and gives us some comfort. Don't let the, 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 the fun um, animation fool you. That is the greatest scientific minds in our planet currently trying to explain life and death. Don't look at us. We don't have any answers. Just questions. And I guess if you say it with a British accent, it's more meaningful. <laughs> Maybe thinking about these questions makes us feel alive and that gives us some comfort. Does that give you any comfort? No. just wanted to be clear that we don't affirm at the church here everything you heard on the video. That is the world's explanation of life and death. You heard him say... Uh, human life isn't really that special after all. We're all just made of the same stuff. And if stuff isn't living in and of itself, then if we're made from stuff that's not living, are we really alive? And if we're not really alive, could we ever die? It just becomes some kind of philosophical game. And yet, we're talking about life and death. The most important question you could ever ask as a human being, what happens when I die? And they can't even define death or life. And so why is the world running to the world for answers when they admit they have no answers to these questions? This is what happens when you try to define reality apart from God. It's what's been going on since, well, since God created man and woman. They were tempted to define reality on their own terms. God was quite clear to them what is life, what is death, what will happen when you disobey God. And they were tempted to redefine their reality. And we're all living in that fallenness now. Each one of us, our, our sin nature wants to define reality on our own terms. Yet I plead with you this morning to consider that only God can define reality because He is reality. So let's go to God's Word this morning, look at some selected scriptures and try to answer these questions from the one who has answers, not just more questions. 
The Bible starts with this verse, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Notice the video didn't bother to explain where all the stuff came from. You can't start an explanation with the stuff already being there. That's kind of a huge jump in logic. The Bible tells us that God is not material. He's not stuff. He's always existed. He's a personal being. He's always existed. And He created everything, the stuff they talked about, out of nothing. And then fashioned it into His universe. They said in the video that we used to separate man from the rest of living things as if we are special. Where did that come from? Where did that idea come from? That, that's biblical teaching. We are special. We are separated from other living things. We're not just animated goo, like the video said. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, This is the last day of creation after he's made everything else. This is the pinnacle of creation. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. By the way, there's some other important definitions that our world seems to be confused about, but that's a sermon for another day. God has always been alive. He is the essence of life. God creates. He makes life. Man is separate from the rest of creation because we are made in God's image. There's something about us that makes us alive. So we still don't have a working definition of life, but we're getting close. Genesis 1.29, Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life. That's important. Everything which has life. So there are some things on this earth that have life in them, and other things that do not. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. God does put a very important boundary between the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom. He gave us plants to eat. And though biologically or scientifically, if we make the definition of life a certain way, we can call plants living things. But we saw in the video that that gets complicated. God in His Word has revealed to us that The kind of life he's talking about is different in animals than in plants. Notice there's no death. Everything is very good, but man and animals were allowed to eat plants. You are not killing plants when you eat them or mow your lawn. Now, we we may have a guest this morning 
who really loves nature. And we don't mean to offend this morning, but a plant does not have life in it in the biblical sense. We understand that there is a difference between plants and animals. You probably interacted in a special way with a pet this morning, maybe your dog. If you're talking to your Easter lily, we should talk afterwards. But your dog, on some level, can understand and interrelate with you because animals have this life in them. So do plants have life? Somebody's listening. I know, we've been conditioned to think plants are living things. They are if you, if you define life in a certain way. They've got, a, they've got a cell wall, things move in and out, they can replicate. But if all there was was in the universe is material things, then it becomes difficult to define life and death. Science excludes the spiritual. God doesn't. God invented science. That is part of reality. The immaterial and the material. When you condense everything to just the material, you have this confusing video that we watched. So life must have something to do with the immaterial. Must have something to do with the spirit. How does God define life then? Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. So he formed a body from the material stuff and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He imparted what makes God living, his essence, departed it into that body, and that is when that body became a living being. Leviticus 17.11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Living things have blood. Plants have uh, water. They have a circulatory system, but there's no life in the blood there. Animals are alive. People are alive. People have the breath of life. Animal kingdom has the breath of life in it. God is life and the source of life. In fact, his name, Yahweh, is Hebrew for I am, I exist, I'm alive, I've always been, I always will be. God never had a beginning and he'll never have an end. That is how he describes himself. What an appropriate name. John 5.26, Jesus said, For just as the Father has life in himself, that's a way of saying nobody gives the Father life, he just has it in himself. It, it didn't come from outside him then, because then that would be greater than God. And there is nothing greater than God. He, he has life in himself. He is life. He's the source of life. 
Even so, he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus equating himself with God. We are of the same essence. In fact, his disciples said, show us the Father. And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Jesus has the authority to give life. To give eternal life. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. So then what is eternal life? Jesus prayed to his father just before he was delivered into the hands of sinners to be tried. And he prayed this to his father, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. No relationship, personal, eternal life is knowing the source of life. To be in a right relationship with the giver of life, the author of life, the sustainer of life. So we have a different definition of life than what we started with this morning. You can't separate the definition from God. Jesus said, to live, Christ. No verb in the Greek. To live, Christ. No Christ, no life. To live, Christ. To die, gain. Paul, how could you say that? We think of death as losing everything. Pull the curtain, fade to black, roll credits, that's it. But he said, no, that's just the start of gain. How does God define death then? That's where we started this morning. The world says the definition of death is the absence of life or the cessation of life, and yet they can't even define life. Here's how God defines death. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Romans 6.23 reads, For the wages of sin is death. Death is a penalty for disobeying God. It's not just something that happens to people. It's a penalty for disobeying God. So then, what is the penalty? Here are the biblical definitions of death. First, there's a spiritual death. Remember, we're not just a material body. We are immaterial soul encased in in a material body. Spiritual death is the separation from the presence and blessing of God as the penalty for sin. Death, biblically, is separation. So when Adam and Eve sinned against God, we don't see them physically dying immediately. In fact, they lived a a long time after, like 600 years. 
But they died. Because God said, in that day that you disobey, you shall surely die. And God is not a liar. Amen. He is truth and in him is no darkness. They surely died. They were separated from the source of life. They had perfect relationship with God the Father before they sinned. They were separated spiritually after they sinned. They hid themselves. They tried to hide from God. They tried to cover their nakedness. They tried to cover their shame. But you can't hide from God. You can't hide your sin and your shame from God. And they were banished from the Garden of Eden. They were banished from paradise. Separated from what God calls the tree of life. The tree that represented eternal life. So the, the first definition of death is spiritual death. Separation from the presence and blessing of God as the penalty for sin. Secondly, there is physical death. But physical death is merely the separation of the soul from the material body. The separation of that immaterial part of you from the material part. I worked in hospitals many years. I have been around death and dead bodies. And actually, those biological processes they talked about in the video continue to happen inside your body even after you're declared dead. And every once in a while, some freaky stuff will happen from a dead body. And so you're wondering, well, is it still alive? But we would all say, no, that's ridiculous. What about people who are declared dead on the ER table and they're resuscitated? Were they ever dead? Were they dead and now they're living? Or were they always living? Very confusing. The world doesn't have answers to these questions. We know biblically what happens at physical death the soul separates from the body. And Paul tells us, absent from the body, where? Present with the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Which may or may not be a good thing depending on whether you made things right with the Lord before you left your physical body. The last definition of death is eternal death. This is like the first definition. This is permanent separation of the soul inside a resurrected body. Every person who dies will get a new body. Amen. Amen. I'm beginning to say those amens louder and louder. I, I spent the day in urgent care yesterday, something wrong with my body, and the world was of no help. I couldn't find anything wrong. They ran all the tests. Of course, they're going to bill you for telling you we don't know. I mean, where else would that be acceptable? To be billed for an I don't know. But the... We asked the Lord to heal me enough to be able to speak His Word today. Here I am. Praise God. 
I don't know what's going on. I just know this body is breaking down and we'll get a new one, a permanent one. Jesus got a new resurrection body. And he is the first fruits of the resurrection. And so we will either praise him eternally in these new resurrection bodies, or we will be separated from him eternally in a resurrection body. And he has made a way for us to be with him eternally in those resurrection bodies through faith in his death and resurrection. That's really the big question, isn't it? Can we avoid death? Isn't that what our world is doing? Scrambling around, trying to find the fountain of youth, trying to uh, delay death. But it's all in vain. You, you can't escape it. You can't run from it. You could put it off for a little while, but it will catch up to you. And yet, for the Christian, for the Christian, physical death is no longer punishment for sin. Think about that. Physical death is no longer a punishment for sin because if you are in Christ, He died for you on the cross. He paid the wages of sin. For the Christian, your physical death isn't paying for your sin. Jesus did that on the cross. Physical death is just the last experience you have of living in a fallen world. It's kind of the last big disappointment. You know, the older you get, the more you understand the world's just not delivering what it promises. And so death isn't something that needs to be feared. As we sang this morning, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For the Christian, for the true believer. That's how Paul could say to live Christ, to die more Christ. Gain. Now, here is what is shocking then. Now that we have definitions of life and death that we can work with. If, if death is the wages of sin, then no wonder Jesus commanded us to think about his death. Because he's the sinless one. The one living being, the one person in all history that should not have had to die, died. The one who should never have been separated from God on the cross because he bore the sins of the world was separated from the Father. First time in all eternity. And then he experienced physical death. He said, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he gave up his breath, the breath of life. And his spirit was separated from his body. My youngest son asked me this week, because each night this week we've been reading out of the scriptures what Jesus was doing that day of Holy Week. And he said, Dad, what did Jesus do Saturday? 
Good question. Peter tells us his spirit descended into hell and he preached to the spirits in hell. I'm not sure what he preached, but I think it was a sanctified, I win. And then his spirit met back together with his resurrected body and he rose from the dead. And then he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords and interceding, praying for all who believe in him, praying us all the way to glory. That's how he could say, no one will pluck them out of my hand. Praying us all the way to glory. A couple of weeks ago at the Shepherds Conference, I heard John MacArthur start a sermon with, Jesus did something more glorious than dying on the cross. And you're like, okay, you've got me on the hook. What could be more glorious? His ministry of interceding for us, praying us. He didn't just start our salvation on the cross. He is finishing it all the way to the end. He intercedes for all believers, keeping our salvation secure all the way to the end. So here's the deal. Now that you know what death is, it turns out that if you have not trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, you're already dead this morning. I received Christ in 1999 after I graduated from college. Ironically, I was walking around studying life as a dead person. Ephesians 2.1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were separated. Spiritually separated from the blessing of God. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, that was me, following the prince of the power of the air, that was me, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, me, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is everybody before saving faith in Christ. And if that were the end of the story, that would be a terrible, terrible story. We'd be left with the video we watched. No wonder so many in our world are depressed and without hope and are despairing. And yet, let's keep reading. But God. Maybe two of the most beautiful words in all Scripture. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Grace, a free gift. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So I say to you this morning, much like the angels said to the women at the tomb, why are you seeking the living among the dead? Why are you looking for life and answers about life from the world? Seeking after money, fame, fortune, recognition, Stop seeking life among the dead. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but it is from the world, and the world is passing away. The world is dying along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Before Jesus died and rose, he had a friend named Lazarus. And Lazarus was sick, and his sisters called to Jesus, Come, our brother is dying. And Jesus delayed coming on purpose. Well, what kind of friend is that? It's a really good friend. Because when you have the power to raise from the dead, if he had come and healed Lazarus, he would have just healed him so he could die again another day. But if he allowed Lazarus to die and raise him from the dead, he could prove to people that he is the resurrection and the life. And so he allowed Lazarus to die, raised him from the dead, and and said these words, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Right? He'll live spiritually even if he dies physically. Even if his body and soul are separated at death, he will not have to be separated eternally from the source of life. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die do you believe this, he said? He's asking us this morning. Do you, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Or do you believe what you saw on the video? You know, you'd probably be mocked by the world for believing this. But that seemed pretty silly to me. We have no answers. Maybe just thinking about these deep questions is living and will bring some comfort. I don't think so. So I beseech you this day of all days, seek life from the living one. If you've already accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, then I urge you to stop seeking 
temporary life in the things that don't satisfy here. Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. If He's secured our eternal life, certainly He'll give us the things we need to do His work here on earth. He will provide for our needs. We're going to play a little music and say a prayer. The elders of the church will be up here and some ladies from women's ministry. If you'd like to come forward and receive prayer for any reason at all, physical healing, the Bible says, come to the elders and they will anoint you with oil and pray for you. If you want prayer because you already know Jesus and yet you realize you've made this world far too important, come forward, we'll, we'll pray with you. And if you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, come now. He's ready to give you that gift. You just need to receive it. Let's pray. After I pray, you're welcome to be dismissed. And those who want to come forward for for prayer, you come forward. Father God, thank you for eternal life. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for giving us life, but more importantly, eternal life. Thank you, Jesus, for your life and death and your resurrection. Forgive us, Lord, for trying to define reality on our own. Help us repent from that, to go to your word every day for the words of eternal life. May we live lives that reflect the truth we find in your word. Thank you, Jesus, for this day and every day you give us. In your precious name we pray, amen.